Lord Jesus Christ, may we drink of your spirit today. Open our hearts that we might hear from you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So as I mentioned during our welcome, it's still Epiphany. It's still the season of Epiphany, right? So this is a, a season that, that, or the word Epiphany means to illuminate something, to kind of bring something to the front of your mind. And my invitation to you, I think that the Lord has given me, the, the invitation for us all during this season is to rediscover who Jesus Christ is, to look at familiar texts and kind of look and see how we might encounter Christ yet again through these familiar passages. So today is kind of an a interesting day because traditionally, uh, some of you might know this, but the church has read certain scriptures on certain Sundays throughout the years. And so there's a tradition dating back to like the third or fourth century of the, the second Sunday after Epiphany to read this story, the wedding at Cana. And so after, you know, you've got Epiphany itself, when, the, when we celebrate the Magi coming to adore and to worship Christ. Then we have the next Sunday, which is a baptism Sunday. We look at Jesus' baptism. Uh, and yesterday we, we celebrated a baptism, as well, or last week we celebrated a baptism in honor of that. And then today is the wedding at Cana, that first uh, sign that Jesus performed. This is when we see that Jesus is sort of jump-starting his ministry. The disciples are growing in their faith. Their belief is growing, as the scriptures tell us. In other words, they're having an epiphany. Jesus' glory is beginning to be illuminated and put on display. So this text, uh, the, the story of the wedding at Cana, comes from the Gospel of John. And it's one of my favorite Gospels to preach on. It's actually a really hard Gospel to preach on because a lot of these stories have multiple layers of meaning to them. And as a preacher, it's like, oh, I want to I cover all of these things. You know, I want to preach on all of these things. And we could do that. We could be here all day long preaching on this passage. There's just so many treasures that are waiting for us. Um, but unfortunately, we don't have time to dive into all of those. But just some kind of an example, some examples of how this, this happens in John's gospel. You know, in John chapter 4, you have the story of the woman at the well, right? And on a first reading, this is a story of... of Jesus uh, going outside of Judea, going into Samaria, right, uh, out, of, uh, and, and out of his comfort zone probably, in order to redeem the outcast. And again, I can preach on that right now. I'd really love to, but well, you get what I mean. A first reading is kind of redeeming the outcast. But a second reading of that is you see that Jesus, it, what we see there is that this is a story that is a declaration of the scandalous, missional heart of our triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Trinity is just oozing out of that passage, right? So another example of this is John chapter 9, the story of the man who's born blind, right? And Jesus tells him to go and wash in the pool of Siloam, and he comes back and he's healed. And then the whole town is kind of in an uproar over this, right? They want to, they quiz him, they bring his poor parents into the equation, they quiz them, all this sort of stuff. And so on a first reading... You could just say, oh, this is another beautiful story of God's, uh, of Jesus' healing touch, right? Of him looking for the outcast, his, his control over the body. But on another reading, it's, it's a story about the baptized people of God, right? All the people who've been dunked in, the, in that pool of Siloam. 
And now, walking through, walking through the Christian life, we are to expect trials and persecution. Again, that's another sermon for another day. But today's reading is the same way. John chapter 2 is another one of these multi-layered things. And, and there's, again, there's so, I'm getting a little too excited for this. I mean, it's, it's exciting. But there's, we'll get to that. We'll, we'll, we'll come to that. But what I would like to do today for this sermon is kind of skim along the surface to give us a, a good first reading of, of John chapter 2. But then I want us to, to take a little bit of a deeper look, to go below the surface and see what sort of treasures God has for us this morning, to see what sort of epiphanies might be waiting for you and for me in this text this morning. So let's look at the passage from John chapter 2. So this takes place in Cana. And Cana is a small, poor town. It's just about nine miles north of where Jesus grew up in Nazareth. And it's probably a fair assumption that Jesus had some relatives in Cana. Maybe he knows the couple who's getting married. Certainly his mother knows who these people are. Uh, it's, it's pretty easy to draw that conclusion. Uh, perhaps Jesus' dad, Joseph, had taken a few carpenter gigs uh, up here, right? You know, maybe this was a, a common place for them to go. And weddings in the ancient world, and, and still in many parts of the Middle East today, these aren't just one little day events. It's not like you go to a, to a place for an afternoon, it's a wedding, and then you go home and, and uh, get on with the rest of your life. No, these are, these are feasts that would last multiple, multiple days, right? They would last a long time. But there's a problem at this wedding. They run out of wine. Now, hospitality, and Molly will, atto- uh, will attest to this, Hospitality in the Middle East is a big deal, right? It's not like you can just run down to Kowalski's and go grab some more wine and come back and, and everything's fine, right? That's running out of food, not providing for your guests is a huge offense in the ancient world, right? And especially on your wedding day. Can you imagine running out of something on your wedding day in this kind of culture, right? Surely people would be whispering and thinking, oh, this is not a good sign, Right? And for the rest of their lives, I don't think this is an overstatement. I think for the rest of their lives, people would be saying, yep, yep, that's the couple. They're the ones who ran out of wine. You know, look how they're acting now. It's no wonder that happened to them. They ran out of wine at their wedding. Do you remember that? Like, this is something people would be talking about all the time. You know, surely none of us want to be the people who run out of wine at our wedding day. Um, I was, I was about to make a denominational joke, but I'm, I'm not going to pick on other denominations at this moment. We'll just let you imagine that Rick did that right now. Now, what, I, uh, what happens next is Mary uh, very kindly uh, leans over to Jesus. She tells Jesus what's going on. Jesus gives this kind of weird, cryptic answer. Uh, it's even weirder in the Greek. It's, it's something like, what is this to me? Or, you know, something like that. It's, it's, it's kind of abrasive. But nonetheless, Mary tells the servants, do whatever he tells you. Do whatever he tells you. Okay, so just uh, another little mini-sermon here. This, this almost turned into a sermon about Mary this morning, right? Because she is just the epitome of what the church is supposed to look like. You know, she is this prayer-filled woman. She is taking the needs of the world and bringing them to Jesus. And then she turns to those around her and says, do whatever he tells you. Do whatever he tells you, right? That is, that is exactly the posture that we are supposed to have in our lives, right? This zeal and this passion for bringing people to Christ as the miracle worker, as the one who heals and provides. But we'll, we'll do that next time this, this passage comes up in the lectionary. 
So Jesus, in his wonderful, abundant grace, provides. He tells the waiters to fill the massive jars that are over in the corner of the room. And then he tells them to go and draw water. And the master of the feast gets some of this, right? The, the maitre d', the, the head chef, whatever you want to call him. The master of the feast has some of this. And it turns out it's pretty good wine. This is good stuff. Uh, he loves it. And then the party continues, right? It's probably fair to assume the party continues for several more days. So for a first reading, this is pretty good, right? Like it's a, it's, it's a good story. In fact, if we decided that for an outreach event, we wanted to, uh, I don't know, turn the story of Jesus into a movie and we were going to, uh, or maybe we we're going to act it out or something, I don't know. Like I'd want to make sure that this scene goes in it because there's a lot of really cool, interesting pieces to it, right? You have the embarrassed wedding party, like, oh no, what are we going to do? You've got Jesus and Mary and that kind of strange dialogue, like who would want to kind of pull some of the, the things out of that, right? And then you've got the servants who are hustling and, and drawing out the water, and then you have this surprise and delight of the master of the feast. You know, this is a pretty cool scene. Jesus' public ministry has launched, you know, the, the, the disciples are high-fiving, they're beginning to get it, amen, let's go home, Right? And that'd be a good, that'd be a decent sermon. We could leave it at that. But there's more than meets the eye here. Before, uh, but before we actually get to that second reading, I want us to kind of pause that for a second and, and make a little, make a little um, pit stop. I want us to kind of look at the reading from Isaiah that we read this morning. Because this is a beautiful passage, right? So in Isaiah, we see this beautiful Hebrew poetry. Bear with me. We'll come, back. we'll come back to the wedding, I promise. But in Isaiah, we have this beautiful poetry describing the wooing and redeeming and rescuing heart of God. It's, what we are seeing here is imagery that God himself is the bridegroom, right? You see that heart throughout this passage. He says, No more shall you be named forsaken, no more shall your land be called desolate, but you shall be called my delight is in her. And your land married, for the Lord delights in you. And then it concludes by saying, as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall God rejoice over you. Now this passage, it's not just a, a one-off passage. It's not like that's just a weird thing that, that only Isaiah does. No, this is a huge theme throughout the Old Testament. God is the groom of his people, constantly wooing them and drawing them back into relationship with himself. In Genesis, we learn that God doesn't just kind of look at humanity and sees, oh, they're, they're doing this thing called marriage. I should, I should use that. That's a great idea. I should use that as an example of, of how I love them. No, we learn in Genesis that God actually invents the concept of marriage himself so that we would have this daily reminder of what it's like for, to, to see God's sacrificial um, love for humanity, right? We're supposed to see his love out of that. In the Song of Solomon, you, you hear these songs of devotion that are exchanged between lovers, right? And it would make anyone blush if we actually to read some of those out loud right now. But again, here we hear, we learn that the Song of Solomon, that it's, it's a love song of God towards his people. He's just completely filled with delight and love over them and lavishes his people with his, his, his appreciation and, and beautiful words. And then in the prophet Hosea, 
We have, a, we have God's unusual command to Hosea to actually go and marry Gomer, a prostitute, as a model to, to show how God's love is, right? That God's love is relentless, forgiving, and unbreakable. And so again, throughout the Old Testament, we could go on and on and on. But this imagery of marriage, of God being the bridegroom, wooing his people back, is, is running throughout it. So let's put a pin in that, okay? That was our, that was our pit stop. Let's kind of put a pin in that. So isn't it weird that in the Gospel of John, the wedding of Cana is actually the first sign of Jesus? Like, have you ever thought about that before? Like, it's, it's kind of a, a, an unusual way to, to kickstart your, your ministry, right? Like, why not something a little bit more uh, impressive? Like, like the other stories and the other signs that we see throughout the Gospels, like the healing of a leper. Like, that'd be a cool thing. Like, that would really capture people's attention, right? Or like multiplying the loaves and the fishes and feeding 5,000 people. Wow, that's a great way to start your ministry, right? Talk about like an outreach event. Or maybe the healing of the man born blind that I talked about earlier. That would have been exciting, sort of getting the attention of a lot of the religious leaders. But the, the wedding at Cana, it's kind of like Jesus is just picking up the groceries, you know? And like not even the people there, not even everybody there understands that it's Jesus who did it. It's kind of a secretive sort of thing. The disciples saw, some of the servants saw, we learn. But it's not like this was a huge public event where thousands of people were becoming disciples of Jesus. No, it's kind of a weird first sign. There's another weird thing about this passage. There's no mention of the bride and the groom. Did you notice that? They're not mentioned in this. They're not, they're not characters in this story. Well, I think you see where I'm going with this, right? John, the author of this gospel, he wants to draw that out. He wants to, he wants to put the emphasis on Christ himself in this story. He wants us to see that Jesus is the centerpiece, that Jesus is the focus of this wedding story. And because it's a wedding, the, uh, John, the author, he wants us to get all of these memories of the Old Testament text, of this wooing God that is, is throughout the Old Testament scriptures. He wants us to remember those stories, and he wants us to realize, he wants us to, to have this epiphany moment. He wants us to discover that Jesus is the embodiment of God's desires to woo back his people. This, here we have Yahweh in the flesh, who is coming down to be with his people, to actually be at a wedding with his people, to have a feast with his people. So let's look back at Isaiah. You will be a crown of beauty in Jesus' hands. It's Jesus who removes the shame from us. It's Jesus who calls you, my delight is in her. It's Jesus who rejoices over you, right? It's Jesus who shows up and brings gifts to the party. So these Old Testament prophets, they love to talk about this great banquet that the Messiah would usher in. It's all over the, the prophets. Hosea, Jeremiah, Micah, Zechariah, they all talk about this wedding banquet feast of the Messiah. And do you know what Messiah always brings? You want to guess? What, is, what does Messiah bring to the banquet? Wine! Yes, he brings wine every single time. It's wine in the text. There's always wine at the table in these stories. And it's not this two-buck chuck, right? This is like, this is like top-shelf stuff, okay? He, he would not, like, if Rick was bringing wine, it'd be like the, the box of wine from Costco, right? That's not what Jesus is doing. 
And if I was a sommelier, I, I would say some fancy wine out there. Um, I'm not, but just trust me. This is top shelf stuff. This is the stuff when you walk into the wine store and you're like, all right, I, uh, it's my anniversary. Uh, I need some help. What should I do? And, and they say, what's your budget? Imagine if you had no budget, right? You, told, you tell the guy that and, it, and he's going to bring this bottle of wine that's going to blow everyone's socks off. Like that's what Jesus is bringing here. And he doesn't bring just one bottle of wine. If you do the math, it's 150 gallons of wine. What? Like, that's amazing. There's so much abundant celebration, provision uh, here in this passage. It's a beautiful, beautiful example of God's love for us. So I wish I could claim this, this illustration as my own. Um, but but uh, a preacher friend of mine down in Birmingham, I actually heard him share this story, and I'd like to share it with you. So he has some friends who have um, a couple of biological kids of his own, uh, of their own, but they, they decided that they wanted to adopt um, some more kids into their family. And so they go to China uh, to go and to, to meet their new, their new kids uh, in their family. And as it happens, uh, both of the babies who they chose to adopt had cleft palates. Uh, so if, if you're familiar with that, it means that part of the... the I'm not a, a doctor or a medical person, so I won't be able to describe this. Uh, but it, it causes your lip to kind of go up into your nostrils. And um, thankfully, there's, there's surgeries and stuff that can address this. But when they, when they pick up their kids, they decide to go to the mall. They want to kind of celebrate and have some family fun together. Well, if you've been in that part of the world, you, you know that in shopping environments like that, usually at the mall, uh, a, a marketing strategy of a lot of these stores would be to have you know, a, a couple young women out front and, and they're kind of beckoning you to come into the store so that you can, you know, see the products and have a closer look at that. And so they, they try to, you know, compliment you and, and woo you to come into their store. Sometimes they'll have samples for you, things like that. So this woman is, is out in front of the store and the family is walking by and she sees that they're Americans and like, oh, oh, beautiful family. Thank you for coming here. You know, please come into the store. And she looks at the parents and you know, and then she looks at, at their biological children, and then she sees the babies that are with them, and her face falls. And she goes, oh, are you Christians? And they say, yes, we are. And she says, mm, yes, Christians, they, they are the only ones who take the bad ones, is what she said. And you see, friends, this, this sign that we see here today, this is the first sign of Jesus' ministry, and there are seven running throughout the Gospel of John. And all of these signs together are proclaiming loudly that Jesus is the long-awaited creator, redeemer of the universe. He is, he is God in the flesh. And they climax with that final sign, the resurrection of the dead. And friends, we are all the bad ones, right? All of us in this room, we are all the bad ones. But in spite of our badness... God crossed an ocean for us. God goes on the outskirts of town to this little poor village in Cana to be with us. And he paid the price. He adopted us into his family and he seats us at the banqueting table. Every week we see this. He takes our embarrassment and our shame and he turns it into a feast of joy. He takes our stale water of ceremony and, and old religion these, in these dusty jars. He takes that and he turns it into the cup of salvation. He takes our sin and our death and he gives us resurrection life, right? And friends, God doesn't just tolerate you. 
He delights in you. There is a table that is set for you every single week. And it's not me, it's, it's not whomever is setting the table who pours the wine. It's Christ himself who pours the wine. So this morning, when you come forward to receive, I invite you to come, to taste and see the gifts of God, beloved, for the people of God. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So at this moment, uh, I would invite you all to stand if you're able. And we're going to be reciting together the